150 says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. So we sing, let symphonies resound, let drums and choirs ring out, all heaven hear the sound of worship. Let every nation bring its honors to the King, a roar of harmonies eternal. Praise the Lord, raise, praise the Lord. Sing his greatness, all creation. Praise the Lord, raise your voice, you heights and all you depths, from furthest east to west, you distant burning stars, all creatures near and far, from sky to sea to shore, sing out forevermore. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Let's sing together Psalm 150.
Well, if you would remain standing and turn to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, verses 13 to 22. Ephesians chapter 2, starting here in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You may be seated. We're going to pray together, and as we do, uh, we want to remember Brittany Livesey. Brittany is one of our missionaries. She serves locally here in the El Medina community, and so we want to pray for her. We also want to uh, thank God and for a new baby. Uh, James and Rebecca Holt had their baby earlier this week, and so we're thankful uh, for that. So let's pray together, and then we actually have a treat. We get to have some special music uh, after we, we pray this morning, so let's pray together. Father, you are, you are so kind and so good and so great. You, you came after us when we were running away from you. And if you had not spoken to us in your word, we would be lost. If you had not opened the eyes of our heart to trust you, we would be lost. If you had not overcome our hard hearts that loved sin and wanted to go our own way, we would be totally and completely lost. And so we worship you and we praise you this morning as a kind and a good and a loving King and God and Savior. Lord, thank you for your kindness. Even now, as we continue to wander, we continue to stray, uh, Lord, we thank you that you've forgiven not only our past sins, but our current sins and our future sins. You saw them all, and you took all the wrath for us and, and cleansed us and forgiven us and given us a hope and a future and peace with you. And so, uh, Lord, let those things sink deep into our hearts today. Let us feel the truth of those realities and be transformed by them. Lord, we pray for your church around the world from, from here in Orange, the other local churches, all the way to the ends of the earth. We remember our brothers and sisters who are suffering, who are in chains, who are uh, beaten or, or hurt for the sake of your name, Lord. We, 
ask that you would sustain and strengthen them, that they would be faithful unto death, and that by their blood your church would be planted in places that it's never reached before, and that the kingdom of darkness would be pushed back and overcome by the truth of the gospel. Lord, may we be faithful to remember them, to pray for them, uh, to do, to, to sort of hold the rope, Lord, for those who go. And Father, we ask um, also that you would strengthen and encourage Brittany in her local ministry here, Lord, that you would bless her outreach, that we would see fruit, that people would come to know you and come to know you more deeply, and that uh, your church would be built up and strengthened through her ministry. Thank you for uh, the new Holt baby, Lord. We pray that you would bless them in these first few weeks. And Father, for the rest of today, that we ask that you would open our hearts to hear your word, to let it shape challenge and transform us this morning so that you would receive praise and honor both now and forever. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Thank you, Music Media. If you can, please stand and we'll continue worshiping. assurance you have given we thank you for the promise that for all who 
run to Christ for security and for redemption will never be cast out, Lord. What an amazing hope, a living and eternal hope of forgiveness and restored relationship with you, you have offered, Lord. We are so thankful. God, we pray that this morning you would speak through your word, that you would, in your Holy Spirit, illuminate our eyes to see your truth and come to love the gospel of Jesus Christ more and more and to treasure it more. Lord, we love you and are so thankful for your many blessings, especially your amazing grace and steadfast love in Christ. We thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22 today. I'll be preaching a sermon entitled, God Will Build His Own Church. God Will Build His Own Church. Now, most of us live in homes or dwellings built by other people. Uh, some people build their own house from the ground up. You know, you may have had a grandparent who built their house with their own two hands. Uh, or maybe someone designs a house and then has someone else build it for them. Most of the time, though, you just buy a certain place and hopefully you like the floor plan. A lot of times you do that because you like the floor plan. But what happens is you might find that someone missed some details. Whether you, you know, build your own house, you go, oh, I missed this, or someone else builds it. Sometimes you find you can't afford certain features, like we can't do that. Um, or this happens a lot of times, right? You're in your house, you think, I wish that wall wasn't there. What were they thinking uh, when they put that bathroom over here? You wish they had designed it differently. Maybe you'll find defects in workmanship. But what you need to know today is this. God builds his own house perfectly and precisely according to his predetermined plan. Never misses anything, never makes a mistake. There's not going to be a you know, class action suit against God for faulty workmanship. We are, every believer is a part of the church that he is building. So today in Ephesians 2, we're going to see really the edifying results of God's work as he providentially builds his own house. God will build his own church. He promised it. Matthew 16, I will build my church. He told that to Peter. And by the way, if you're new to grace, we didn't just airlift ourselves into Ephesians today and just pick some verses and, uh, you know, find out what we can see in this verse. We, we have a usual practice where we go through, uh, move through, make our way through a book of the Bible verse by verse. So we happen to be right here, right now. And just to catch you up, if you haven't been here, you know, for the rest of our time in Ephesians, chapter 1, and, and by the way, Ephesians is beautiful. It just gives this beautiful, beautiful picture of God's work in his church. And chapter 1, I just, I'll sum it up like this. Chapter 1 tells us about God's glorious grace in saving those he has chosen. It's just beautiful. And chapter 2, really, it just zooms in on that. It's about God's glorious grace in saving, just seen in greater detail. So just zooming in, his, his creative, wonderful workmanship. And what we're going to see today, really, is how even as believers have been united in one body to God, and we're talking all believers in Old Testament, New Testament periods, anyone who was looking forward to the Messiah, and anyone who now is, is looking forward to the Messiah coming, but anyone who's believing in the promised Messiah to save people from their sins are part of this, this group that God is building. 
And anyone who's ever been saved was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In the Old Testament period, they were just looking forward. And now we're looking back at the cross, but we're all looking forward to the return of Christ. But what we're going to focus on today really is this this unity of this group that God put together. And it's going to be called a a household, a kingdom, a building. But what's going to turn out is that the, the building is a temple. It's kind of a big deal, okay? So, and the temple is filled with God's presence through his spirit. That's what we're going to see. We're going to see that God builds his own house perfectly and precisely according to his predetermined plan. And we see this really in two ideas in these verses we're looking at today. First idea is that the the church was designed by Christ. But the second idea is the church was built on Christ. As we move our way through these verses, that's what we're going to see as God does this building precisely and, and perfectly uh, according to his predetermined plan. You see first that the church was designed by Christ. How did he do it? What's he doing? Is he doing it? He, he uses people, and they're called here in this passage citizens and members and stones, and forms us into one new entity. So the first thing you see is that as, as the way Christ designed it, is this. Look at verse 19. Just put your eyes on the the words in this Bible verse. If you have your Bibles, they should be open to Ephesians chapter 2. In the New Testament, we're looking at verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. So the first thing you'll notice is that, uh, that we're citizens of a kingdom ruled by Christ. No longer strangers and aliens, fellow citizens with the saints. So really kind of a political term here. You're part of a a kingdom. You're a citizen. Now this would have connected really well with those who first heard this. And of course it connects with us. We know we're citizens, you know, like I'm a United States citizen. You might say I'm a citizen of America or of Italy or whatever. But the, the idea there in the first century, it was a much bigger deal. Okay, You didn't become a citizen just because you were born in a place. It was a very rare thing to become a citizen. So here you have Ephesus, which is a city, was a city of like 250,000 people, a quarter of a million people. The citizen group, the citizen body, was far less than 1,000 people. We're talking, uh, you know, crazy numbers, rare, rare to be a citizen in Ephesus, one in 250. I mean, and you think about it, less than 1,000. And two centuries later, it was, it was hovering a little bit over 1,000. So they weren't dishing out citizenship, you know, like cookies or something like that. Um, and Paul is telling Christians, and that, that would have included slaves and free people, that they were fellow citizens with God's holy people. And it would have been mind-boggling, mind-blowing, universe-exploding, because the thing was, they would realize, wow, I'm an elite company that I have this magnanimous privilege bestowed upon me by God. Now, you think about how, how little we think of citizenship. Or think about how little we think of even being in the body of Christ. This was big to them, and it framed their entire life, as it ought to frame ours, as it ought to drive ours. They're no longer strangers. You know, a stranger was a foreigner who lived in a city with no guaranteed rights or privileges. Like you would just be passing through 
or, or you would just be staying temporarily in the city and you were not safe. You were in danger. Like you were only given protections maybe by a local business associate or by a friend you might have in the city. This was not like you could just show up and, and be you know, fine and, and, and be enjoying all the privileges of the city. An alien and a stranger, a sojourner, was another, another class, an alien or sojourner. You would also be known as a resident free alien. You could be born in a city. You could live in, in a city and have your family live in a city for generations, but have no access to legal privileges or, or protection. Now, most of the people living in Ephesus at that time had the resident alien status. They had lived there a long time, but they weren't citizens. They weren't citizens of, of Ephesus or cities like Tarsus or Rome. So you think about a guy like Paul who had dual citizenship, like in Tarsus and Rome, he was a relative unicorn. Like that, that wasn't the norm at all, this possessing of dual citizenship. But believers hear this, and it, you, you see it in Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven. Like spiritually, Christian, you belong under God's rule. You are, you are under his kingdom, uh, under his rulership. Our citizenship is in heaven. You have, to, you have to tell yourself that. You have to remind yourself that as you're walking this life, that our citizenship is in heaven, and from heaven, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. My, my paternal grandfather, Michael Shera, came to America from Italy uh, at age eight, 15, somewhere around 1913. And he came to America. He was a stranger. He was an alien, and he made a life. But even then, and even up until the time I was in high school in the in the 19, um, late 1970s, there were derogatory terms for Italians. And so he knew that he wasn't part of it, but, you know, he made his life. But here's what they're, the, the Christians are being told. And, and again, how, how, how life-changing this would have been, uh, station-changing even, for them to hear this. Like, you are no longer a stranger and alien. In fact, the dividing wall of hostility... You're no longer separated. Like you are, you are indwelt by God. Strangers and aliens. I mean, we know of strangers and aliens here where we live. And just in our county, you can, if you do the counting, there could be some upwards of 60% of people living in certain places born elsewhere. And they're going to feel outside unless they're invited in, right? And here he's telling Christians, you have been brought in. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ's blood was shed in your place, and now, by faith in Christ, you are in the family. You're not strangers and exiles to God. You are now, as Peter put it, strangers and exiles to the world. Because you don't belong here. You're not of this world. That's why it says, you know, abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against your soul. Because you're a stranger and an alien here. We've got to remember this. See, what, what God did is he flipped the script. Literally flipped the script. We're citizens of a kingdom ruled by Christ. This is how the, the church was designed by Christ. How else? Another picture here. Still in verse 19, members. Members of the family of God. What does it say in verse 19? And members of the household of God, literally the family of God. Now, this was more stunning than being a citizen. I mean, if you thought 
Citizenship was rare. This was even more stunning, far more stunning. When Paul shifts from this you know, political metaphor of being a citizen to now, oh no, God has made you, new Christian, a believer in his very family. You are his family. The Greco-Roman household would include widowed people and orphaned people and free men and slaves and Often the household was quite large, but you were still that. You were in the household, and you were still free or a slave or orphaned or widowed. But what he's saying here is that, believer, you're not put into the family of God as an orphan. You are not put into the family of God as a slave. You know you have been adopted into the family of God. If you're adopted, you know exactly how it feels. Wanted, accepted, chosen. And what, for the believer, what it means for your identity, this is why you don't need to keep on going back to your old life, because your identity, not just a citizen of heaven, but a member of God's family who has been adopted into his family, and therefore you are a son or a daughter, and therefore you are an heir and a co-heir with Christ. It's far more than we could ever ask or think. In Galatians 6, it tells us, if, as we have opportunity, believers, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. Pay especially good attention to your fellow Christians. Be especially kind and loving to your fellow family members. 1 John 3, it, John says, Behold. When you see behold in the New Testament, it's like just ears perk up. You listen up. What, what? Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Adopted, chosen, brought in. What it means for you today, if you're a believer, is you belong. You belong to Jesus. Your soul's not gonna get stolen away from you. Jesus said, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And, and Jesus said that no one will be able to snatch you out of my Father's hand because my Father is greater than all. Don't be afraid that you might lose your salvation. The most miserable people are people who say they're Christians but think they can lose their salvation. What's that about? You belong. And what you notice in verse 19 is there is a, you know when you do something wrong and there's a, there's a consequence? And, you know, you might get caught and you're like, well, I'm glad I got caught and, and I'm, you know, I'm dealing with it. But there's a consequence uh, to when you do something wrong. It's usually not a great thing, okay? It's a, a painful thing. But there are consequences of things that are really awesome, okay? Really awesome. Like if you work really hard in school and you get straight A's, well, you get a, you know, they give you something. Um, but there is a sweet consequence to Jesus being our peace, as we saw last week, that Jesus is our peace. He has brought us together, peace with God, peace with one another. And, and he, it sums up the whole argument of this section. You're no longer an alien, okay? And, and again, if you were a resident alien, you were subject to part of the law of the land, and you enjoyed some maybe little tiny protection if you could find it, but you were an outsider, 
What he's saying is you were once strangers and aliens to God, but now you're strangers and aliens to the world. And the sweet consequence is not just a fellow citizen, but you are of God's own household and you're you're his own family. You're you're a kinsman. Uh, You're you're more than a familiar friend. You're you're a family member with all rights and privileges. Um, You have access. You, you, You have a key. My son-in-law is sitting right over here. First hour, I had another son-in-law sitting here. I got a lot of kids. And uh, they don't need, you know, when, when my son-in-law was, was, was uh, you know, dating my daughter, he knocked on the door when he came to the house. Now he doesn't need to knock on the door. He walks right in. He's family. My son. He's my son. He has a key. Well, he should. He just walks in. We, it's, always unlock, it's always unlocked anyway. I'm not giving the address, but it's always unlocked. If you know me, come on in. Have something to eat. Um, but if you're a family member, you don't need to knock to come in the front door. You have a key. You have access. You're welcome. People don't say, why are you here? So you're a citizen of the kingdom, ruled by Christ. And then this is how Jesus is building his church. This is how he designed it, members of the family of God, that you are a member. But then, there, then, there's, then it goes deeper, and it's, it's, it's even more stunning. It's like a, it gets to a level now where you're like, you know, but wait, there's more? It's like... How could there be more than this? There's another picture now. Another picture. And he uses a picture, it's interesting, stones. Which seems impersonal, but it's stones in a temple. Stones in a temple indwelt by God. Spiritual stones in a temple indwelt by God. So Paul is now moving from Christians being members of God's house, awesome, to now an even deeper level being the material from which the house is built. Look at verse 20. Look at it, verse 20. Put your eyes there. We're going to look at 20, 21, 22. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We'll come back to that. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We'll come back to that. Verse 21, this is a Christ-centered thing. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So what you find out right here is there's a clarity here now, there's a clarification that the the building is actually a temple, and the great thing about that is that's where God dwells. So you don't just belong to something, you're God's dwelling place now. The word for temple in the Bible refers to the inner part of the the temple where where deity dwelt, where God dwelt. And so you think about even in the Old Testament economy, God lived among his Old Testament people. He was seated on the ark in the tabernacle and then in Solomon's temple. But now, now the worldwide church, the real church, true church of Jew and Gentile alike has the Lord's presence dwelling in it. God dwelling with his people by his spirit is, is the Holy Spirit's presence. And think about this. Go, go back to the garden. Think about the garden. In the garden, the Holy Spirit uh, dwelt in the Garden of Eden, made it a sanctuary, a proto-temple, if you will. Now God's presence with his people transforms you and I into regenerated, uh, resurrected new creatures. And we are a new creation garden and temple because we're indwelt by God. 
Now, if you were first hearing this in Ephesus, what you would have immediately thought of when you, when you, when you heard the word temple, you would immediately think of the great temple of Artemis Ephesia, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the largest building in the Greek world. It, made, it, was, it, was, it was big, magnanimous, and it made uh, Ephesus an important tourist attraction. It made them a lot of money. It was a moneymaker. But what he's saying is the temple of which Christians are a part is, is growing into a temple, transcending all human buildings in beauty and in significance and in magnificence. The new temple. And when you, when you think of the temple of God, it's a building project that has only just begun. And it's been going on for quite a while. Think about even in that very moment in first century, the, the church was being planted at the far west edge of, of the known world in Spain. And, and, and on the day of Pentecost, even stones from every nationality, people from every nationality, even uh, notoriously savage nations, we're being added into this new interconnected people of God, this temple. And so when you think about it and we say we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, your body is even the temple of the Holy Spirit, and, and that the church is where God dwells, and it's not the building, it's the people. When you think about that, you don't say, well, the church is like the temple. You don't say that. You don't say the church is just like the temple. Because it is, it is the temple. It is, it is the actual fulfillment of the last day temple prophecies from the Old Testament. The church now, due to Christ's resurrection, the Spirit of God continues building the end time temple and the materials are God's people and it extends the temple into the new creation. God's doing it. The building process culminating in a new heavens and a new earth, paradise, city, temple. But here's, here's where it gets sticky because you and I are living here and we're muddied and we got our feet muddied and, we, and we're, we're wading through quicksand and we, 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 we hear this and we're like, but how's that going to pay the bills tomorrow? And how is that going to help my marriage survive? And this, that, and the other. And the thing is, this drives that. If you grasp it, this drives that. The gospel drives everything in the Christian life. The gospel is not like unattached to the Christian life. The gospel is not, you know, uh, irrelevant to the Christian life. The gospel is the Christian life. It, 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 it flow out of it. And so that's why in Ephesians 4, it talks about the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, the building up of the body of Christ. And that's why Peter said this in 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, as you come to Christ, a living stone, rejected by men, in, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, access to God, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Praise and prayer and, and service and, and anything you do in Christ for his name and his glory and the good of others is not in vain no matter what anybody tells you. Living stones in his temple. You notice, and it says it, we're being built, uh, fitted together. It's the idea of being fitted. To, it's a construction term. It, it represents the whole elaborate process they would go through back then of building a temple. 
they would have to uh, build stones together, fit them together. Very elaborate, very time-consuming, very dangerous work. It included cutting large stones and honing them and, and testing them and fitting them and making sure they fit where they were supposed to go. Then they would have like dowels and holes. They would fill the holes with molten lead. There was just a lot of things they would do to get it just right. And it would be permanent, humanly speaking. You know, I think of last summer, we had some people working in our, in our backyard, skilled men that were fitting together the pieces for a stone walkway with all these stones that we had had in our yard. But before that, they were just sand set. They were just around. And I even said to them, I said, you know, just, if you could just reorganize them over here. And they're like, no, 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 we're not putting them in sand. We're going we're gonna to anchor these. We're going to put them in cement. You don't want to be, you know, have them moving around all the time. I'm so glad they did it that way. But they were precise about it. They, they spent hours. They carefully chose the, the right shape, and they chiseled, and they just did meticulous work. And, and, you know, you can see that contrasting with every one of us has cracking cement somewhere in our life. In somewhere we live or somewhere we walk, there's cracking cement. that We see buildings falling down. Maybe they didn't use rebar. Maybe they had incorrect makeup of ingredients. But you have the church... And you might look around and go, it doesn't look so hot. But the church increases and grows with a continual development from God where he is chiseling and shaping and conforming as he indwells us. And he indwells us individually. He indwells us corporately, which, which means the members care for one another. Like, like a stone in a building doesn't say, you know, you, you, you know they, they don't have elbows. You know, they don't need a jockey for position. They, they put there. You belong in Christ. You don't belong in the world. You don't love the world. You abstain from those fleshly lusts that wage war against the soul. And, and what you find is you're being perfectly built with imperfect materials because you know you're imperfect, but God is perfect. And so what God is doing with his church is he is making it straight. He is transforming it. He is, he's taking these new creatures and he's saying, and this is why so many times in the Bible it says, don't go back to your old life. God's at work in you. Don't go back to your old life. Don't be afraid you're going to be lost. No, you know, you don't stand alone. Some of you are like, I feel alone. Well, you, you then tell yourself the truth. In Christ, I am not alone. In Christ, I am, I have a family. In Christ, I am part of something. None stands alone, though we, sometimes we act like it, right? Not alone. When you're alone, it can twist your mind. You got, you know, you air, airlifted somewhere alone and for a while, and you have to be the last one out, and mind, you can go crazy, right? Isolation is detrimental to, the, to your spiritual well-being. It's not good for the church. But the thing is that, that God is not just building his church. He is building us together. It's not just building you over here as this independent, you know, ADU or whatever. It's a you little tiny house. No, it's not you alone. You've been reconciled to him, by him, to each other. You're citizens, you're saints, you're members. And, and, and the spirit is building. So don't get in his way. You know, put on your hard hat. Uh, it, the, the, the huge stunning upgrade. Like you, you go from, again, citizens to saints to, and, and members to stones. And in verse 22, it says, In him, in Christ, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. You are, God is doing this, and you are, you are being built. You're, you're a temple built together, being built together with others. And it's ongoing. It's a present tense because the building process is still going on. 
God is building his house. God chooses the inhabitants and all. You know, I remember when, uh, reading the Bible where it says, that God said to David, it was good at the, in your mind that you wanted to build me a house. You're not going to do it. It's God's design. It's God's choice. He chooses. And, and, and believers are a temple, not just a little simple ramshackle house. And it's not going to be dilapidated. It's a place of God's dwelling. It's a place of his settling down. And, and the goal or intention is that he would be glorified that we would glorify God and enjoy him forever, which is why we have access through the spirit of God to God, not to get what we want, not to make a bunch of lists of what we want Jesus to give us, but built by the spirit of God with comfort and assurance, that you have comfort and assurance that the one true God does this. You have comfort because of the word of God, that there's not gonna be a change in plan. There's not gonna be change orders. And we are mutually accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the church was designed by Christ. But secondly, the church was built on Christ. And I want to draw your attention to verses 20 and 21 because we see the foundation and the cornerstone. So the, the, the church was built on Christ. First, the foundation. Look at verse 20. You were built on the foundation of, interesting, it doesn't say Jesus because he's the cornerstone. It says the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And what, what the Ephesians were being told in that moment in time is they were the first layer of stones laid on the temple's foundation. But the foundation was set. Can you build a house with a foundation? You build one foundation. You don't build one every week, okay? You build one foundation. And what, what he's saying is from here on out, the building's going to be continued to be built, but the foundation and the initial level of it has already been laid down. It's set. But it's set on what? The foundation of the apostles and prophets. What does that mean? Well, there's something that the Jew would know as soon as they read this. They would go, wow, I know what this means. This means no going back to a Mosaic theocracy that excludes Gentiles from membership in the covenants of promise. The Mosaic Old Covenant had been displaced by its fulfillment in the New Covenant. Definitively, like permanently instituted by the once for all high priestly sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But the foundation being spoke of on which the Ephesians are built up is what? The, it's the ministry of the apostles and prophets. And what was it? It was a word-based ministry. They gave us the word as the Spirit spoke. So what this is pointing to is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets is like God saying, built upon the permanent word of God that points to Christ. That's what this is that the prophets being spoken of, it would have been either the Old Testament prophet that, were, that you know, his, the writings formed the, the backdrop for the apostolic message of preaching Christ. I mean, over and over and over again, they're referring to the Old Testament prophets and they're testifying to the rightful place of Old Testament re revelation in support of, of faith in the New Covenant era. It was cemented in its final form through the apostles. So whether it's you know, the apostles in the New Testament and either the Old Testament or the New Testament prophets, until the scriptures were settled, they were carrying forth the proclamation of peace through Christ. So what this tells you is this. The apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church, and there's no more apostles and prophets. They existed. They still speak through the word of God. But if someone comes up to you today and says, hey, by the way, hello, my name is Joe, and I'm an apostle, you can know he's false. His name might be Joe, but he's not an apostle. And he says, no, I'm a prophet too. No, he's not. That's false. 
The apostles and prophets here signify not an ongoing office in the church, but a time-bound one. Ephesians 4 says, God gave some as. His choice when and who. And the foundation of the church is the word of God, the eternal and authoritative word of God. So, and, and that word does not point to you and me. It doesn't point to a list of things that you need to tell Jesus to do for you. It points to Jesus Christ crucified and buried and risen and reigning now and returning. And returning with, with blessing for those who believe and judgment for those who have refused him. See, the church was built on Christ and the foundation is the permanent word pointing to Christ. We preach Christ. We preach Christ from the word. But then the cornerstone, it says its cornerstone is Christ Jesus, preeminent. He is preeminent over all. So the cornerstone is the preeminent Lord Jesus Christ reigning over all. Its cornerstone is Christ, the keystone, the cornerstone, like a keystone in an archway or a cornerstone in a building. That's where you start, and that's where everything gets measured by, and, and, and it's like Jesus holds it all together in its primary place. Jesus is holding everything together because he is in the preeminent place. Now, if you were living in Ephesus back then, what you would have noticed is that Ephesus was going in the first stages of a building boom that lasted in the next century. Like if you go to a certain town, you're like, wow, look at all the houses getting built. That's what it was like in Ephesus. And when this letter was written, uh, new construction sites throughout the city were, were having their foundations and stones brought in from quarries where they were reusing stones. And here he's saying, so you're living stones, but Jesus is the cornerstone, which is going to ensure that the whole building is stable and secure and square and right and, and just as he intends. He's the cornerstone. That's why Peter put it this way, 1 Peter 2.6. He said, and he's quoting Isaiah 28.16. It stands in Scripture, quoting Isaiah, Behold, this is what God said, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, will not be cast out, will not be lost. In Luke 20, the chief priests and the scribes were coming to Jesus. They were harassing Christ. He tells them the parable of the vineyard owner and the wicked tenants. And he says to them this, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then he tells them, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. If you're believing in Jesus today, you're one of the stones that he's building in his temple. If you are rejecting Christ, Christ is going to be what crushes you. Your sins are either on Jesus and you are believing in him or they are on you and you are under condemnation. And Christ is the, is the central figure in the, in the church. Psalm 118 verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected refused became the chief cornerstone. Mark 12 says this about that cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. We love this. The whole building, the interconnected and growing in, together into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you believers as well are being built up together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The Spirit dwells within us. And as, as miserable as you might feel today in your life, 
whatever is stacking up, whatever is piling up, whatever is maybe crushing you under a load, whatever it is, this, this truth ought to lift you up and give you hope and go, wait, so everything isn't, isn't you know, lost? So everything in my life isn't in shambles and crumbling? It might look like it right now, but if you're a Christian, Jesus Christ preeminent is reigning and ruling over all, including your life. He is our ruler. He is our king. Embrace your identity, Christian. Let's do, let's do some application to it. Like, what does this mean? Like, what does this mean as you go your way today? What does this mean? It's how will this drive your life as a believer in the Lord Jesus? Now, again, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus, we just call you to faith and repentance. Let's turn from your sins and turn to Christ. But if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, what does this mean for you today? How should this even thrill your soul, even if you're going through the most painful time in your life? How might it give you joy? Well, let me give you three ideas. Just three ideas quickly. It's this. First of all, every believer, you are a part of Christ's universal, or as, as we put it, invisible church, capital C church, and you must give evidence in a local, visible church, lowercase c church, where you give Evidence of you being in the church by being a part of a local church and you have a testimony for Christ. Like we know you follow Christ and you cherish Christ and you cherish the church and you commit to Christ and you commit to the church, a local church. Again, this is not alone. You drop miles apart with no interaction and you have to survive alone. No, that's not the Christian life. If you've put yourself there or you feel like someone else put you there, well, get out of there. you got to be with the people and serve with the people and serve the people and, and not come demanding you know, the, the agenda you want, but just deliver good. I'll take you back to Mother's Day and Father's Day, men and women, that you would not forget. If you're older woman or older man, you not forget to seek out younger women and younger men. The older women would teach younger women what it means to be a Christian w- woman. And that older men need to teach younger men what it means to be a Christian man. And that we learn from one another. But I mean, I think about this. It's like every believer is part of Christ's universal church. And every believer should be a part of a local church. But, and we all know how life goes. I mean, how many days have you spent kind of mindlessly wandering and not going in any meaningful way? I, I read something recently that was kind of funny. Someone says, yeah, I get to work. I, I hide from my boss. I get to the office. I twiddle my thumbs. I think about other things. I scroll through things. I do like 15 minutes of work, then I go to lunch. And the thing is, and, and you can say the same thing about going to school or going to work or doing this or doing that, and it's like, we know how it goes. And we know how we get around, you know, doing anything meaningful. But what will shake the rust loose? I mean, seriously, what would shake the rust loose? I think, I truly believe with all my heart that for every Christian, it's this. When you see your part in the body of Christ, when you see your part as a citizen and as a member of the family and even as a stone in the temple, and then you put that in your mind and you think about it and you have no agenda except I want to glorify God and I'm going to come with a mind to work and help and bless. Because God has comprised the body such that all the members show honor while some might be more prominent, all have a part. All are to be engaged. We don't pick and choose, even though we're picky and choosy sometimes. That every believer belongs to a larger family and every believer must belong to a local family where you say, I'm gonna depend on Jesus. I'm gonna interdepend on my brothers and sisters and I'm gonna live life in Christ 
I'm going to engage with the world. I'm not going to isolate, but I'm going to know that I am not of the world. I am a heaven citizen, and, and, I, and I know it. It's, it's like being sand set or cement set. And not just in Christ, but in the church. Maybe some of you never got cemented in to Christ. You need to become a believer. You need to know who you are. Maybe you haven't gotten cemented into the local church. If this is your church, you need to join this church. You need to like join this church. There's a misnomer at Grace Church of Orange that you somehow have to be 18 to become a member. No. Anyone who has a testimony of faith in Christ who's been baptized as a believer can join the church. I was talking to a guy recently whose kids got We were having like three baptisms coming up, and we had one recently. And I said, you know, next step is, okay, your kids just got baptized. They're believers. They got baptized. Next step, they join the church. Link up with the church. Commit to the church. Look around and go, yeah, people just like me, struggling through life. We need one another. Like, you, you, if you never got cemented in, I will tell you this. Jesus will give you the strength you need to either connect or reconnect with the church. Maybe you've wandered away. Or maybe you just haven't got linked in. You need to engage. And then say, I'm going to live for God's glory, and I'm going to live a life of worship. I'm not just going to come to worship. I'm going to live a life of worship. You think about God's glory seen in the gospel. God's glory is, is holiness. His, it's a weighty significance of who God is. And, and we are to approach God with proper reverence and awareness of who he is in our life. Not just when we come here. Not just when we come here. But when we are living our life. And the Lord takes his worship seriously. Living a life of worship. It's not something that we should take lightly. If you think it's a light thing, if you think I'm just going to come and hear some cool music and a sermon that's just okay and then pray a little bit and go home, you're mistaken. Think about Leviticus uh, chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. Nabad, Nadab and Abihu. He, they acted irreverently. They did not approach God with proper reverence and awareness of his dignity. They did not glorify God and they were consumed. And if you go, oh, that was an Old Testament thing. Well, you know, 1 Corinthians 11, they, Paul says, if you're partaking of the Lord's Supper without due attention to its significance, beware. We must worship God, uh, you know, thinking, not carelessly. Augustine spoke of the gravitas of worship. This doesn't mean you have to be serious every moment of your life. Doesn't mean you can never tell a joke. Doesn't mean you can't laugh with your friends. But there should be this undergirding gravitas, seriousness, knowing who you are in Christ and that you have a direction in life that's far different than the world and that you, you have a serious of mind, seriousness of mind in the presence of God, that we worship a weighty Lord. So our worship must reflect the significance of who he is and what he does and, and his attributes and not treat him you know, merely as a buddy pal. I haven't read anywhere in the Bible where it says, God's your buddy, pal. He's your Lord, and, and Jesus says, I, will, I am with you always. Christ lives in me, Paul says. But offer him the honor due him, nothing less. Every believer, part of Christ's universal, invisible church, must give evidence of that faith in a local, visible church. Cherish it, commit to it. Secondly, the word of God, remember the foundation is the apostles and prophets. The word of God must be central in every church. It should be handled accurately and followed obediently. That you would let your mind be shaped on an ongoing basis by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. 
that you would become more and more conformed to Christ because you know his word even more as time goes on and you live that word. That you, it's like order upon order, line upon line, a little here, a little there. You just keep going to the unchanging word of God. You don't look for more outside of it. You look for the gold in it. I read this the other day. We have 17,000 pages in our law books because we can't follow 10 lines on a tablet of stone. There's too much mishandling of Scripture, too much manipulation of Scripture. We need more precision as we handle the Word and practice it. I'm going to preach a sermon on August 13th on why every church must handle the Word accurately because left and right churches are not doing that. And by the way, we are, uh, we are not aiming... Uh, to be the most eloquent people in the world, me or anyone else who preaches up here, we want to handle the word accurately and engage you with it. How often could it be said that we get some fixed idea in our mind of what the church should be or what a Christian is and wrap our ideas with a little scripture like, you know, bacon-wrapped something not good. God wants you to relish the word of God and rejoice in Christ and live in such a way that reflects Jesus. Every believer, part of Christ's church, part of a a local church, and the word central in every church, handled accurately, followed obediently, and third and lastly, we must acknowledge Christ as Lord over our life and over his church and over everything. And it's not enough to say, well, he's Lord. Paul said, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, which means not just saying words, but the truly say it and proclaim it and live it only if you're in, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, only if you're a real Christian. Jesus said, there'll be plenty of people that come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. So it's not just calling him Lord. It's believing the Lord of glory. Uh, and, and Isaiah 6, that the glory of the Lord filled his temple. And Jesus says, I'm with you always. He's the glorious Lord Jesus. And he's building his church. and uh, He's the cornerstone. He keeps everything in place. And, and it, you think about a, a house. You know, you might over-decorate your house. You might let your house grow up overgrown with shrubs on the outside. No one can see the house. Don't obscure the building. Right? Don't obscure the building. Don't, don't, don't force your personal preference upon the church. Jesus is preeminent. And we don't build it. Some people say, we're building Christ's church. No, we're not. We're not building Christ's church. He is. We do not build the church. God does. He will use you as you yield to him. First uh, Corinthians 3, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So our witness to the world cannot be, you know, self-directed. Has to be, can't be just shooting from the hip. Has to interact with people uh, with the gospel, and it can't be according to our momentary mood. I know how many times I go through life on a daily basis, and I just interact with people according to my momentary mood, and they get my mood instead of the gospel. We should bring glory to God and good to man, lead others to know Christ, then bring them. By the way, I read this the other day 85% of people that start attending a church do so because a friend invited them, not because a pastor invited them. 6% because a pastor invited them. 85% because a friend invited them. And uh, you know what we want you to do? We want you to lead people to Christ and bring them here. Now, just in case you're a little shy and you're like, oh, I don't know what to say. Well, you can bring them here. We'll preach Christ to them. But you need to do that too. Lead people to Christ. Bring them here. With a heart that's tender and loving Jesus and knowing he's going to build his church. 
You know, um, I love it when I'm, when I'm coming home and I'm flying home from somewhere and I, and I see the lights of home. It's familiar. But I love driving up on a daily basis to my house and I come up at night, you see the lights of home. You go, that's where I belong. That's where I live. You know, and Jesus lights up his house. This is where you belong. This is where you live in Christ. He's the Lord of glory. He, his glory fills the church. He's the glorious Lord Jesus. And think about the glory of God. When you think about the glory of God in Scripture, often it's, it's bright light. Bright light. Uh, scripture de- uh, describes the glory of God in terms of, of a light that shines brighter than anything that we experience on earth. Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 2. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. Through the glory of God in your life, in this church, the glory of our creator, the glory of our savior is the light that shines forth in a dark world through God's people as we point pagan nations and pagan friends and neighbors to the Lord of all. You know, Revelation 21 tells us that in the new heaven and new earth that God will bring, creation will have no need for the sun by day or the moon by night because the glory of the Lord will illumine all of creation. God will build his own church. The church designed by Christ, the church built on Christ, um, and every believer has a part. The word must be central, and we must acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. And we are his dwelling place. We are his dwelling place. He lights up the house he builds. And Lord, we praise you. We thank you. We love you. We worship you all because you first loved us. Thank you, Lord, that you indwell your people. Thank you, Lord, that you are building your temple. Thank you that we are your dwelling place. Thank you that we, the people that you have saved, uh, we're humbled by your greatness and want to serve your purposes. All for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand if you're able as we'll close worshiping, singing Jesus, thank you. I cannot comprehend the agonies of Calvary. You, the perfect Holy One, Christ, your Son, who drank the bitter cup reserved for me. Your blood has washed away sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. sacrifice I've been brought near the enemy you've made your friend pouring out the 
Before we go, a few announcements. We are at baptism right after third hour today, so if you're still on campus, please come and join us for that right after third hour. Uh, there's Prime Timers Bingo Ice Cream Social this Friday night, 6 p.m. This Saturday, 9 to 2, is our missions conference. It's really a missions weekend, so we're having the conference. Don't just uh, show up. You need to sign up. It's $20, covers some breakfast stuff, some lunch stuff, and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, Luke Womack is, is speaking, Ed Trenner is speaking, I'm speaking, and then my friend Chris Anderson is speaking twice. He will also be preaching next Sunday. And then after Sunday, next, next week after church, we're having a, uh, a missions report. Everyone who's been on short-term missions and one of our long-term missionaries will be here to share right after church, third hour next week. So um, there's a lot other things going on. The missions course starts September 19th. Uh, we've got di three different kind of baptisms going on this summer, so make sure you know about that. Uh, Grace Orange Academy, uh, open registration until August 31. And then men's and women's retreats. Ladies, sign up for the women's retreat. Men, sign up for the men's retreat. And if you go sign up, men, you get your Eternal Glory t-shirt, which sounds kind of funny the way it was written here, but that doesn't mean you're going to Eternal Glory the moment you go out there. It means you're getting a t-shirt that's going to remind you of the eternal glory that will, is ours and will be ours forever in Christ. Okay, let's go ahead and close with Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And Lord, we thank you and praise you that we could be here together today. Now send us by your grace and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.
Sovereign on the ocean floor with me. In